Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 35th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. 133 talks given over five years by Pope John Paul II between 1979 and 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. It was said, do not commit adultery, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, the history of a people. We must carry out the analysis of Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mount that refers to adultery and to lustful desire, which he calls adultery committed in the heart. By beginning with the first words, Christ says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He has in mind the commandment of God, the sixth in the Decalogue. It is part of the so-called second tablet of the law which Moses received from God, Yahweh. Let us first take the point of view of the direct listeners of the Sermon on the Mount, of those who heard Christ's words. They are sons and daughters of the chosen people, the people who had received the law from God, Yahweh himself, that had received also the prophets, who had repeatedly in the course of centuries reproached precisely the people's relation to this law, the many transgressions of the law. Christ, too, speaks about similar transgressions. But even more so, he speaks about a human interpretation of the law that cancels and does away with the right meaning of good and evil specifically willed by the divine legislator. The law is, in fact, above all a means, an indispensable means, in order that justice may superabound. The words of Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 in the Old Translation. Christ wants such justice to exceed, literally abound, more than that of the scribes and Pharisees. He does not accept the interpretation they had given in the course of the centuries to the authentic content of the law, inasmuch as they in some measure subjected this content or the purpose and will of the legislator to the various forms of weakness and the limits of the human will that derive precisely from the threefold concupiscence. It was a casuistic interpretation that had superimposed itself on the original vision of good and evil connected with the law of the Decalogue. If Christ strives for a transformation of ethos, he does so above all to recover the fundamental clarity of interpretation. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. The condition for fulfillment is correct understanding. And this applies, among others, to the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. If one follows the history of the chosen people in the pages of the Old Testament from the time of Abraham, one finds abundant facts that attest to how this commandment was put into practice and how, as a consequence of this practice, the casuistic interpretation of the law was worked out. First of all, the history of the Old Testament is clearly the theater of the systematic defection from monogamy, which must have had a fundamental significance for the understanding of the prohibition, you shall not commit adultery. 
The abandonment of monogamy, especially at the time of the patriarchs, was dictated by the desire for offspring, for numerous offspring. This desire was so deep, and procreation as the essential end of marriage was so evident that wives who loved their husbands when they were unable to give them offspring on their own initiative asked their husbands who loved them if they could take on their own knees or receive children born of another woman the example given those of a serving woman a slave this was the case with sarah and abraham see genesis chapter 16 verse 2 or with rachel and jacob see genesis chapter 30 verse 3 these two narratives reflect the moral climate in which the decalogue was practiced they illustrate the way in which Israelite ethos was prepared to receive the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and how this commandment was applied in the most ancient tradition of this people. The authority of the patriarchs was, in fact, the highest in Israel and had a religious character. It was strictly tied to the covenant and the promise. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, did not change this tradition. Everything indicates that its further development did not limit itself to the rather exceptional motives that had guided the behavior of Abraham and Sarah, or of Jacob and Rachel. If we take as an example the most illustrious representatives of Israel after Moses, namely the kings of Israel, David, and Solomon, the description of their lives attests that effective polygamy established itself, and it did so undoubtedly for reasons of concupiscence. In the story of David, who also had several wives, what is striking is not only the fact that he had taken the wife of one of his subjects, but also the clear consciousness of having committed adultery. This fact, as well as the king's repentance, are described in a detailed and suggestive way. See Second Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 through 27. By adultery, one understood only the possession of another's wife, but not the possession of other women as wives next to the first one. The whole tradition of the Old Covenant indicates that the effective necessity of monogamy as an essential and indispensable implication of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, never reached the con consciousness and ethos of the latter generation of the chosen people. On this background, one must also understand all the efforts that aimed at introducing the specific content of the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, into the framework of promulgated legislation. The books of the Bible, in which we find a full account of the whole Old Testament legislation, confirms this. If one considers the letter of this legislation, it becomes evident that it combats adultery decisively and without hesitation, using radical means including the death penalty. See Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22. Yet it does so while actually supporting effective polygamy, fully legalizing it at least in an indirect way. Adultery is thus combated only within definite limits and within the circumference of definite premises that make up the essential form of the Old Testament ethos. 
In these laws, adultery is understood above all, and perhaps exclusively, as the violation of the man's property right regarding every woman who was his legal wife, usually one among many. Adultery is not understood, by contrast, as it appears from the point of view of the monogamy established by the Creator. We know already that Christ appealed to the beginning precisely concerning this matter. See Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Very significant, in addition, is the situation in which Christ takes the side of the woman caught in adultery and defends her from stoning. He says to the accusers, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. John chapter 8, verse 7. When they drop the stones and go away, he says to the woman, Go, and from now on do not sin again. John chapter 8, verse 11. Christ therefore clearly identifies adultery as sin. By contrast, when he turns to the ones who wanted to stone the adulteress, he does not appeal to the prescriptions of the Israelite law, but only to conscience. The discernment of good and evil inscribed in human conscience can turn out to be deeper and more correct than the content of a legal norm. As we have seen, the history of the people of God in the Old Covenant, which we tried to illuminate only with a few examples, unfolded to a remarkable degree outside the normative content placed by God in the commandment, You shall not commit adultery. It bypassed it, so to speak. Christ wants to correct these distortions, hence the words spoken by him in the Sermon on the Mount. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 35th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. It's important for us to highlight certain aspects of this 35th catechesis, remembering all the while where we've been. Pope John Paul II has been treating the words of Christ, how he appeals to the human heart. This part of that section of the Theology of the Body focuses on commandment and ethos. There'll be more about ethos in my reflections here. The commandments of God are manifold, especially we remember the Big Ten Commandments, to have no other gods but God, and to honor his holy name, to love it, to revere it, to keep holy his day, to honor our father and our mother, to respect life, to not kill, to be patient, to safeguard our chastity, our modesty, our purity of heart. That's a special focus of the theology of the body, not to commit adultery, not to covet our neighbor's wife, to respect property, not to steal it, or to covet our neighbor's goods, and to not bear false witness, to love, to respect, to say the truth in love. Those are the commandments of God in general, and there are all sorts of specifics attached to them. This part of the commandment and ethos section focuses on the sixth commandment. It was said, do not commit adultery. And our Lord Jesus Christ, he focuses on this sixth commandment in his Sermon on the Mount, his stump speech, as it were, as he went about curing the ill and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Pope John Paul II is contextualizing this utterance of the Lord by focusing our attention on the history of a people, not just any people, but the people of God, populi dei in Latin. The people of God is a special term in the thought of the Second Vatican Council, which 
gave a new impetus to this term, the history of a people, God's people, chosen by him, those who worship him in spirit and truth, who glorify God in their body. Eight times Pope John Paul II addresses this passage from St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 27, You shall not commit adultery. The Ten Commandments are not ten suggestions. It's not a multiple choice. Pick your favorite three. No, we're called to do them all. And we can't keep even the smallest one without God's grace, without the help he gives us, beginning in holy baptism, where the grace won by the death and resurrection of the Lord is applied to us, deepened in the other sacraments of initiation, confirmation, and Eucharist. And what keeps us faithful to our baptism, to our confirmation? It is the Eucharist and penance. Give us this day our daily bread, our supersubstantial bread, the bread from heaven, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ received in the Eucharist, and forgive us our trespasses, the sacrament of confession, of penance, of reconciliation. You shall not commit adultery. The Spanish rendition of the Sixth Commandment is even broader. No hacer actos impuros. Do not commit impure acts. And this comes to mind because when I was teaching the kids in school, they would say, Father, I'm not married, she's not married, so it's okay, right? No, that's called fornication. And the Pope will get to things like that. The Sixth Commandment of the Decalogue. Pope John Paul II identifies that to not commit adultery is a part of those blessed ten words by which we are blessed when we cherish them and follow them. For to follow the commandments of God is to follow the good God who gave us the commandments and who in Christ Jesus gives us the grace we need to keep the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Part of our loving our neighbor as ourself is keeping the sixth commandment and the other nine, not to commit adultery, to respect holy marriage, to treasure it, to promote it. Adultery is against holy marriage. The sixth commandment, thou shall not commit adultery, is a part of the second tablet of the law. Pope John Paul II points out, this reminds us that the first three commandments, to have no other gods but God, to love God's holy name, not to take it in vain, to keep holy the Sabbath, though that makes up the first tablet of the law. The first three for God, the last seven for our neighbor and ourselves. The Lord God Almighty gave us the Big Ten, the Great Commandments, through the ministry of Moses Mount Sinai. This is a part of the history of the people of God. Israel, the people of God of old, and Mother Church, the new people of God. Either way you look at it, Holy Moses is a part of that sacred history. And now, in this part of sacred history, Pope John Paul II has reminded us of these great truths, truths of our salvation, truths of God's revelation, all public revelation having ended with the death of the last apostle, give or take a hundred A.D., with the death of St. John the Evangelist, the Apostle. Pope John Paul II teaches that to fulfill the commandments implies a correct understanding of the commandments. It's one thing for us to have them committed to memory. You can look in the hard drive of my computer. You have the sacred scripture in three versions. You can have the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the whole text, on the hard drive. But the computer does not believe, let alone understand. The words are there, but it takes a human heart to understand. 
And without a correct understanding of the commandments of God, we cannot fulfill the commandments of God. And that is even before the grace of God, which we need to keep them as well. A false understanding of the commandments of God, which impeded their fulfillment, was casuistic interpretation, a way of interpreting the commandments so they end up not even having any bite, any force any impact. There can be a value to casuistry trying to figure out just how far the commandments go, where they do impact. But a different form of casuistry robs the law of any import. And the Holy Father uh, denounces that here in this 35th installment of his Man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. The Holy Father points out that the prohibition of adultery given in the face of defection from monogamy. Monogamy, one man, one woman for life. Not a serial monogamy as we have in a promiscuous society. Oh, well, I'm faithful to the one I'm with while I'm with the one I'm with. That is a travesty. We read about the prohibition of adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Even as people were abandoning not only in the days of Moses, but even in our own day, we read it still. The commandments of God do not change with the time. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word does not pass away. And this is part of the word of God. The patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, are specifically mentioned by Pope John Paul II as having difficulties in this regard. They practiced polygamy. They were acting contrary to monogamy. Sarah and Rachel not able to give their husbands, Abraham and Jacob respectively, offspring, so they would farm out these reproductive duties to slave girls. This is a crime against monogamy. And while we read about it in sacred scripture, sometimes the things we read in sacred scripture are not the virtues to be mirrored, but vices to be avoided, showing how far the people became depraved, how much we were in need of a Savior, Christ Jesus, to teach us how it was in the beginning, and to give us the grace we need to correspond with the divine will. The divine will expressed on Sinai, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not be a polygamist, you shall be monogamous. Pope John Paul II not only highlights Abraham and Jacob, Sarah and Rachel, but even David and Bathsheba and David's son Solomon. Both these kings of Israel struggled with God's holy commandment to not commit adultery, not to be polygamous, not to have more than one wife. The prohibition of adultery, Pope John Paul II points out, and the necessity of monogamy are essential and indispensable, even though this was lost on these later generations of the chosen people, may it not be lost on us. This is why, in part, Pope John Paul II went to the trouble to give us the theology of the body, that the necessity of monogamy not be lost, how it is essential and indispensable for us to be faithful to the covenant, the covenant given with Abraham, the covenant given through Moses and David, 
but the fullness of the covenant in Christ Jesus, bridegroom of Mother Church, who has one bride only, who is faithful to her, even to the point of having his life's blood shed on the altar of the cross. It is Christ the Lord who said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But appealing to our human heart, what does he say? He says, I say, do not even look upon the other with a disordered desire, with lust in your heart, lest you commit adultery in your heart. Not merely the corporeal infidelity, but even the spiritual infidelity of the heart. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. This, too, is a part of the Sermon on the Mount given by the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry on earth, a ministry now continued through Mother Church. The ministry continued for 27 years by Pope John Paul II, especially those five years, 1979 to 1984, when he presented in general audience, Wednesday by Wednesday, the theology of the body. The Holy Father reminds us that you shall not commit adultery as a commandment has a specific content. There have been some who would approach sacred scripture and the moral requirements of divine revelation to say it's just words. The Holy Father is not a part of that camp. He knows that it was the Lord Jesus himself who said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is from the evil one. The commandments of God, you shall not commit adultery, among the others, has a specific content. The Lord means what he says. And we will all have to render an account. Have we been pure of heart? Have we encouraged others to purity of heart? Or have we been two-faced? Have we been unchaste? Have we been immodest? Have we been a lustful people? The society in which we live would not be a lustful society, a base society, if it were not for the citizenry. And here is a good examination of conscience for us all. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, has normative content. Even though bypassed by many, this bypass is corrected of distortion by Christ Jesus, the Lord, bridegroom of Mother Church. To say that the commandment has content means it's not just words. When God says not to commit adultery or not to do impure acts, it means what it says. Don't do these things. Do the contrawise. Be faithful. Be monogamous. Be pure of heart. Be pure in your deeds. One thing Pope John Paul II stresses in this 35th Catechesis is that procreation is an essential end of marriage. And while there are other ends of marriage, such as the good of the spouses, here he identifies procreation as an essential end, that without which one of the greatest blessings God gives in holy marriage is the gift of the child. No one has a right to become a mother or a father, but the child is the one who has the right to be born of the love of his parents. Procreation, the parents working with God. God gives the soul and the parents give the body. I can remember working with the children asking what are the two ends of marriage and they said death and divorce. So they misunderstood what I meant by ends. And so we think in football, the end zone, that's where we want the offense to take the football. So the end of marriage, the goal of marriage, the purpose, why bother, what's it for? Procreation, essential end of marriage. 
Our Holy Father doesn't only speak about procreation. He speaks also in this 35th Catechesis about concupiscence, the tendency to sin, one of the consequences of the fall of original sin. And he identifies concupiscence as a reason for polygamy. So there are many different reasons for many different sins, but one of the reasons for the sin of polygamy, a lack of fidelity and monogamy and holy marriage, is concupiscence, carnal concupiscence, a, a tendency to sin with our bodies, to sin sexually. Pope John Paul II reminds us that adultery was seen only as the possession of another's wife and not regarding multiple wives back before Christ was refreshing our memory, reminding us of the beginning. So here we see a correction, a major correction. Not only thou shalt not commit adultery, but thou shalt not commit impure acts. Polygamy, an impure act. Adultery is not only against property rights. It is against that, because a husband gives himself to his wife in holy marriage. The wife gives herself to her husband in holy marriage. Forsaking all others, they do by their vows. Adultery is against monogamy, as established by the Creator in the beginning. This is a truth not only for Jews or for Christians or for Muslims, for believing people. This is true for all humanity. The Pope is very intentional when he uses the word Creator, for there is only one Creator of all that is seen and unseen, male and female. The last part of this 35th Catechesis, which I wanted to highlight, is regarding ethos. Old Testament ethos is part of the overarching presentation our Holy Father is making. The ethos of the chosen people, the people of God of Israel, an ethos which is not foreign to Mother Church. In point of fact, it is part and parcel, as we see, since our Holy Father has gone to the trouble to make these presentations. I thought it would be important to go over just what the heck ethos is. And here again, I'm indebted to Professor Waldstein, who in his index has given a a glossary of terms, not only referring to the different sections where the Holy Father treats the topics. So Professor Waldstein, based on John Paul II's Theology of the Body, tells us this, that ethos differs from virtue. And here we're talking about the virtue of chastity. Ethos difference from virtue in being bound up with actual acts of knowing as conscious attitude or position taken up with respect for the good, the good of chastity, the good of marital love, the good of monogamy, the good of keeping the commandments. Ethos is the interior form, the soul, as it were, of human morality. So it's one thing for us just to keep the commandments, but it's another thing for us to do it with the right spirit, with a good heart, with the best of intentions, not just a slavish following of the law, but to recognize the goodness of the law and the goodness of the Lord who has given the law and the goodness of the creation of which we ourselves are a part. Ethos is an interior perception of values. We value human love. We value holy chastity. We value the other person as another self. We value the commandments given by God in whose image we are made and at whose blood we have been purchased, a price beyond value. Priceless are we in the sight of our good God who made us. 
who has redeemed us in Christ, who has made us his holy and chosen people. This is the ethos not only of the Old Testament, but the New. These are the ethos of the kingdom here on earth, present in seed form in Mother Church, Bride of Christ the Lord. So remember these things. Next time someone asks you about modesty or chastity or purity of heart, they all correspond to the words of Christ spoken in his Sermon on the Mount. When he appeals to our hearts, he reminds us of the beginning, the way God made us, male and female, good. We've been called to be saints, and it's possible with the grace Christ has won for us on Calvary's height, when he wed himself to one bride only, Mother Church. Until next time, God bless you.